podcastjuice.net. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Prince Podcast. My name is Michael Dean. Joining me today, my cohorts, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, but my, You're not. I'm not. That's what I do. <laughs> but joining me today, as you heard his voice, Mr. Big Sexy and Sax. Sir, how are you? Uh, doing great, man. Had a good week. Had some uh, music news of my own working on. So, uh, yeah, it's a good time today. Ready to roll. Ready to roll. All right. And also joining us, he hasn't been back on the mic with us in quite a bit, but he's one of the OG co-hosts of the Prince Podcast, Mr. Big Ken. Sir, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Happy to be on the show with you guys. In, in the immortal words of Ice Cube, today is a good day. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as you already know, because you're listening to this and you see the title on the on, on the website and you know what this show is going to be about. But joining us today, we have a man that for Prince fans out there and for me particularly, his sound of his saxophone playing is so synonymous with Prince music. It's hard for me to separate the two. If I don't hear his stuff on some Prince stuff, it ain't the real Prince stuff in my eyes. That's just how I roll. But joining us today, Mr. Eric Leeds. Sir, how are you? I'm just doing fine, Michael. Thank you so much for asking me to join you today. Man, thank you for coming on. And I would be remiss. I have to do this uh, and shout out uh, Matthew Bale, uh, he uh, helped sort of get this thing going, so I want to make sure right. I shout him out. Uh, big Mr. Mister Matthew Bale, sir. Thank you. All right. Okay, so uh, let me get some of these things out of the way first so that I can do this interview. There's something I've been saying all week as I've been preparing for this, and I just got to say to you, uh, Mr. Lees, because this is how I get down right now, and I'm excited. Uh, Eric, blow your home. Okay. Ah. Now I'm done. <laughs> that was almost that was almost like a Pavlovian dog thing when I used to hear that. I could be half asleep. I hear that. Oh shit! I got to get to work. <laughs> I love it. Yes, sir, man. I've listened to so many recordings of the shows and rehearsals and stuff, and just like ah, you guys are killing it. And we're gonna be all over the place today, but I want to make sure we start at the beginning. Uh, first of all, uh, can I? Is it cool if I call you Eric? I almost feel like I'm. I guess, oh, I, please, please. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm still too young to have to be called <laughs> Mister Leeds. <laughs> all right, because I'm, I'm, I'm like you guys to me, man. I like superheroes, so I don't know, if, you know, Mister Superman or Mister Leeds. Or, you know, I don't know what. Well, the, that, that's that's how I was with with all the cats that I grew up with with James Brown. Okay, see, you know, there you go. James Brown was always Mister Brown Mr. to me. Yes, Mister Brown. That was that respect. Uh, yep. that had to be put forth. Um, so, man, I'm glad you brought up uh, Mr. Brown, James Brown. I want to take us back, though, because and I know your brother, Alan Lees, and hopefully one day I can and talk with him. But mm-hmm. take me back to where you're where you come from, your origins. Uh, you know, where, where where were you born? Where are you from? Um, I, I was actually born in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And my 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 father is from from New York and Alan was born in New York. My mother, coincidentally, um, is from St. Paul, Minnesota, the Twin Cities. Mm. Um, so it was kind of ironic that both Alan and I would end up living in the Twin Cities where my mother was born. Um, and she had moved to New York when she was young. That's where she met my father. Um, but my, my dad was a department store retailer, so we kind of moved around a lot. So mm. um, I was born in Milwaukee. 
But we only lived there until I was like seven years old, and then we moved to Richmond, Virginia. Um, we were there for about seven or eight years, and that's where Alan began his career first in radio. Um, and then when I was in junior high school, we moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and that's where I went to high school, and that's where I went to music school, and that's where, where my career began. And, and I lived in Pittsburgh uh, from like 1966 through around 1983. Wow. Um, so that's, that's where the bulk of my career was. That's where, you know, where I, I had my own bands and, mm -hmm. and um, um, played all around Pittsburgh for years and years. And then um, I think it was 1983, yeah, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia for a couple of years. And okay. it was uh, the next, next year and was in 84 that I began working with Prince. What, what, uh, what got you into uh, picking up an instrument? Um, Ray Charles. Ah. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 that you know, that was my Prince. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I, I had... My, my, Alan was really into R&B music when he was like nine or ten years old, and I was, I'm five years younger than Alan. So I was exposed to this music because of Alan okay. at a very, very young age. And, you know, the first cats that I could really remember digging were, were you know, cats like Little Richard, Fats Domino, mm -hmm. Chuck Berry, all the, you know, the, the icons of the, of the origins of, of R&B and rock and roll. But by the time... I was about eight or nine years old. Alan had discovered Ray Charles, <laughs> and, and that that was that was it for me. Wow. Um, I, I and and it was his music, and particularly um, the cat who was his primary uh, saxophone soloist, cat named David Fathead Newman, and that's why I play the horn. I mean, wow. you know, it was really, you know, you know, now, it, you know, it could have ended up being somebody else a few years later or whatever, mm -hmm. but that was the first music that really, really just so captured my imagination at, at, at such a young age. And then hearing that saxophone of this guy, David Newman, was just said, you know, so when I was about nine or 10 years old, I just decided, you know, maybe I want to try to do that. Wow. And, and, you know, it's important. I want to, you know, stress like putting things into context. Now you talked about, you brought up Ray Charles now for a lot of younger listeners and people my age as well, they can think back, they'll think back to the Jamie Foxx movie of Ray. Sure. But, and you said Ray is my prince. So can you like just shed a little light to us and give us a little history of like, I mean, what did Ray Charles mean at that time that you would well, say he that, was your prince? It, it, at that time, you know, um, you, you have to understand that the whole scope of what we talk about and the music that we're talking about now, whether you want to call it rock and roll, R&B, or whatever, it was the culmination, uh, particularly after World War II, when we think of the early rock and roll days. It was really the sociological a phenomenon of white, young white Americans mm. discovering finally and, and really um, bringing into their lives the music of black America. Mm. Because that's what this music is. Mm -hmm. um, Ray Charles was such, um, he was almost like a Renaissance man because Ray Charles had a very, very deep jazz background. If all Ray Charles had done was play jazz, he would have been very well known and, and accomplished for that. But he was also a blues musician, 
and he also had a very um, heavy gospel influence. Now, at that time, particularly in, in, in the black community, there was a very big distinction between what it meant to play pop music or blues and gospel music. And Ray Charles was somebody that took the vocabulary of gospel, black gospel music and, 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 and jazz and blues and really looked at it as just two sides of the same coin. And for very conservative people at that time, they thought it was heresy mm. that somebody would take gospel-infused music but put blues lyrics on it. So it, in, even in just in the black community, it was somewhat revolutionary at that time. And he was well-known, um, you know, particularly among black Americans, before he became known to young white Americans. And it was really a song of his called What I Say that mm -hmm. became one of the most iconic songs in, in, you know, in the history of American pop music that kind of began to cross him over. Um, I think that it was as much his jazz, his, the, the jazz component of his music, which, which affected me, because really jazz, while I, I was listening to a lot of rock and roll and R&B, but it was at the, at the same age that I was getting into Ray Charles, I was also getting into jazz, and that's really the music that captured my imagination more than, than anything else, at least as somebody that, um, you know, it was the music that kind of inspired me to want to play a musical instrument. Um, but... The vocabulary of what, what I say became the vocabulary of American music, Ray Charles is one of the most significant um, people in the history of this music. First of all, his vocal style, the way he just approached any song, the way he sang. There isn't anybody in pop music today, I don't care who they are, who doesn't... Um, take from the vocabulary and, and, and the instruction book. Mm. If you're going to sing pop music, whether it's, I don't care if you're Beyonce or even a Britney Spears or anybody, whether you know it or not, so much of what you know how to do with your voice in service of this music came from people like Ray Charles. Without Ray Charles, there is nothing. He was that significant as a musical uh, contributor to, to, to the legacy. So much of what happened in music came from just his disciples. Um, certainly Stevie Wonder is one of the most essential um, musical personas and contributors to what we call American pop music. But without Ray Charles, there's no Stevie Wonder. I mean, it, 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 was, it was that significant. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can think of when, when you look at particularly um, um, the contributors to the vocabulary of the music, the only person historically, I think, that was as essential as Ray Charles was James Brown. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, just jumping here quickly, have you, did you ever get a chance to meet Ray Charles? By any um, no, I never did. Okay. Um, my brother did very briefly once. Um, but I was, you know, just way, way too young in those days. I mean, I, I don't think I was even, you know, I, I don't think I was, it was several years after I was really in love with Ray's, Ray's music that I even had an opportunity to hear him before live, okay. know, hear him perform live. Um, I was, you know, I was, I was way too young to be going to concerts. Then. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. so when, uh, now what age did uh, your brother Alan, did he sort of go off and you said he started into radio and I assume, you know, that sort of, 
he was starting well like i say we were living in richmond virginia mm-hmm. and there was one um r&b station in richmond it was called want radio and that's what and it was it was a daytime only station i mean it it would have to it signed off every every evening at sundown um and alan started he just one day he was i guess he was about 17 years old he just went down to the station one day and just went in there and just started to meet people. I mean, he was just like, you know, I, I, here I am. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And he actually, over, over a period of, of time, became very, very close friends with several of the guys, the, the, some of the younger guys that were DJs and working at that station. And literally within several months after that, Alan kind of wiggled his way in, into getting on the air. Hmm. Um, like on a Saturday afternoon or, or whatever. And anyway, that, that was kind of his entrance into um, the world of music. But, I mean, literally, he was like 17 or 18 years old by the time he... I, I think by the time he was 18 years old, he had his own Saturday morning um, show on, on, on oh, the wow. station. All right. Yeah. What, what, um, and now you guys, you, you guys are from Pittsburgh at this point. Uh, you talk about... You know, a, a white white cast getting into black music, but mm-hmm. what was it like? Did you guys? When did you start first playing out? You know, and, and what kind well, of places I, did you play? Well, I I started playing I started playing the, the the horn when I was in grade school, and I and I, I you know was just in like grade school bands and things like that. But I was I was taking private lessons from a, a saxophone teacher in, in Richmond right away. Mm. Um, I really didn't make a, a, a final determination that I was really going to pursue music as a career until I was in, um, I would say, junior high school, high school, uh, maybe like ninth or tenth grade, uh, when I really finally decided that this is something I was going to want to pursue as a career, and, the, and that once I graduated from high school, that I wanted to go to music school after that. Um, I guess I started. You know, I mean, I had a little kitty band when I was in Richmond, when I was right. like, you know, 13, 14 years old. And we used to like, you know, play like, you know, maybe dances at, at, at you know, at school or something like that. You know, maybe once, once, twice a year or something. Um, but I started, uh, um, you know, I graduated from high school in 1970 and immediately went into music school after that. And I was in all the, the you know, main ensembles, the jazz ensemble, the symphony band, the saxophone quartet. Um, I started and, and, you know, I, I was in bands, you know, with friends of mine, just, you know, jam bands or whatever. We might play a gig here and there, but my professional career, I guess, started probably around 1971, 72. Um, my, my first jazz band that I had in Pittsburgh in 1972, I was 20 years old. We, um, started playing club gigs around Pittsburgh and, um, in December of 1972, we were the opening act for a concert uh, featuring uh, um, the iconic band Weather Report, which was oh, really? probably one of the most yeah Weather Report. Weather Report as a band was probably you know by that time Miles Davis and that music and Weather Report that more than anything else defined what I aspired to be as a musician more okay. more than anything and more than any other music. Wow, <clears throat> and you said that was in '71. Uh, 70, 72. Weather Report formed in 71, and, and it was, I think, December of 72 that we 
my first, you know, my band uh, opened up a concert for them. It was a concert featuring them and 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 uh, Ross and Roland Kirk, who was also one of the preeminent jazz saxophone players of that era. So I, I'm just curious, and then I'm going to go to uh, Big Ken for a question. So when you do that show, I mean, did you? How did you feel? Was is it? Did you intimidated, or you like, no, we're ready? To be up here, oh, I'm scared to death. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I mean, you know, there's, yeah. I mean, I mean, it was like I, I'm dr- I'm driving to the gig that night, and I'm I'm realizing that the people who are paying money to to, to hear the music that night. They're they're going to hear three saxophone players. They're going to hear Wayne Shorter, who's one of the most iconic tenor saxophonists and composers in the history of progressive music. Rasson Roland Kirk, who was also one of the greatest tenor saxophone players in the history of the music, and then they were going to hear me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'll just turn around and drive home. You know, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, you know, we were thrilled to death, but yeah, I mean, intimidated, hell yeah, but you, you, you know, it, it. Now, I had been into Weather Report um, for a year, you know, since they had formed the year before, but this was my first time to hear them perform. So mm-hmm. I was just absolutely looking, you know, just thrilled that I was finally going to hear this tremendous band that I had fallen in love with. Mm-hmm. But to also have my own band be the opening act on that band was just beyond belief for me. And of course, what capped it off is that at the end of the, at the end of the night, as I'm, you know, I mean, we played our half hour set and then Weather Report played and then Roland Kirk played and I'm in just seventh heaven because these are heroes of mine. And at the end of the gig, I'm packing up my horns, and I look up, and there's Wayne Shorter and Joe Zavanul, who was the keyboard player and the, and the, and the co-leader with him, a weather report, who was another hero of mine. And they asked me and, and, and the other members of my band, they said, they said, you were the guys who were the, the, the first band this evening, right? And I said, yeah. And he came up and walked, they walked up to me and shook my hand and, and said, you know, I'm a 20-year-old kid. And, and, and they looked at me and said, you guys keep doing what you're doing, because mm. you guys got it. You know what you're doing. You're going to have a great career. You keep at it. Wow. Now, I mean, you know, that's that's something I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was like, you know, that that was that was a game changer for me. Right, right. That's sort of like confirmation. Like, okay, we on the set. Yeah, Is it, we, yeah. It, you know, because I was expecting, well, maybe maybe <laughs> he's going to come back and just like pat me on the shoulder and say, "Hey, kid, don't quit your day job." <laughs> 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 Hilarious. <laughs> uh, Big Ken, man, you had a question. Yeah, I mean, he actually pretty much answered it. I was, I was thinking to myself that you know Ray Charles was your your main influence, and and all, particularly you got into Fathead Newman, which to me sounded like Fathead Newman was your gateway into jazz. Absolutely, well, so yeah, absolutely, because you know Fathead was one of those rare cats that was a tremendous jazz player, but also played R and B, you know, and with with the same level of of passion. Because you know the 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 world of jazz is littered with with the the horrible attempts at jazz cats to like dumb down their music in order to try to make it pop, and <laughs> and nine times out of ten that doesn't work because so many jazz cats really just don't feel pop music or R and B, but for somebody like a Fat Ed Newman and the cast that played with 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 Jane, with with Ray Charles and the Maceo Parkers and the Fred Wesleys and the Pee Wee Ellis and those cats that played with James Brown, these were all jazz cats that could equally um, bring that same passion to R&B and funk. And that's what kind of defined me, because jazz and R&B and funk were just, for me, kind of two sides of the same coin. Right. Did you, yeah. it sounds to me also like, I mean, you, you were big into the fusion and electric jazz. I mean, that's also oh, absolutely, a favorite absolutely. period of mine, especially the electric miles, that whole era with Weather Report, Return of Forever, all that. 
Did you yeah, gravitate I mean, I mean, to? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's yeah, that's that's you know really the music. Um, you know, I'd gotten into Miles, of course, and I was you know deep into Coltrane and all the really you know all of that stuff. But um, in in the late '60s, you know, you were starting to hear that the music wanted to progress from just the you know the the, the more mainstream acoustic swing jazz into into in, into music that was going to utilize electric instruments. And duple meter rhythms, which were you know rock and and, and R and B and funk rhythms, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of jazz players that were getting into that cast, like Charles Lloyd particularly. Um, but when Miles really embraced all of that, and particularly with his albums in a silent way, and then and then Bitches Brew, that's mm-hmm. the music that really you know when when I when I brought Bitches Brew home and listened to that, it was like okay, now I get it. Now I know what I'm going to try to what what if left to my own devices, this is where I this is what I want to be. I understand completely. So I would assume then as well that you probably got into the 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 second great quintet that he was doing in the late '60s prior to in a silent oh, way. Oh, absolutely. Sorcerer, I mean, Nefertiti, all those albums. Oh, I, I I used to I used to take those albums, you know, back in the days when when turntables were changers, where you could stack albums and just let them drop <laughs> oh, one yeah, after the other. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I used to take all of those albums from ESP to Miles Smiles to Sorcerer Nefertiti, Miles in the Sky, Kilimanjaro. I just used to stack those and play those <laughs> albums over and over again. Wow. I completely understand. I completely yeah. understand. Now, at the same time, I do the same thing with all of, all of Coltrane's albums. I was, was going to ask you, so who, who would you rank the best? Train, Sonny Rollins, Wayne Shorter, Roland Kirk? I mean, well, I mean um, who's, tops for, who's tops for Eric Leeds? Well, I, I mean, from, from a standpoint of the most significant contributor to to the, the vocabulary and what's possible to do with the tenor saxophone Coltrane, was you know n- n- no no one revolutionized what could be done with the instrument as much as Coltrane did, but at the same time, he was somebody that was revolutionizing the music with his conception of how you know and 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 the quartet that he had with McCoy and and Elvin and Jimmy Garrison, because that was like you know it was his his significance for the music was not just as as the saxophone player was as he was it was equally as much as the conceptual as the composer that he was equally the same thing with miles um miles probably doesn't get all of the respect that he deserves just as being a trumpet player but even as you know the trumpet player because as a trumpet player he kind of transcended the instrument because he's really equally and, and even more significant for what he brought to the conception of the music as, mm-hmm. as a composer and just what he did with what just how the music evolved. Um, so certainly as, as, as a saxophone player, Coltrane is certainly at, 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 you know, the epitome for me in that respect. Now, as far as just my own personal taste, along with Coltrane, obviously Fathead. Um, Roland Kirk was one of my prime influences and of course Wayne Shorter. But there were other cats, Cannibal Adderley. I, I can't yes. imagine my life as a saxophone player with, without the music of, of Cannibal Adderley and his band. Um, he was one of the few alto players that was, was a, a huge influence on me as, as a tenor and baritone player. Um, but the tenor player that played with Cannibal Adderley and his band for several years, Yusuf Latif, uh, was a cat from Detroit who was huge, huge influence on me personally. I just absolutely loved his sound. 
Um, but then, you know, there were so many other cats, like Pharaoh Sanders is, is one of the most significant tenor, tenor men for me, as Archie Shepp was, mm-hmm. uh, as Gatto Barbieri was, as, as um, Joe Henderson, Stan Getz. Later on, of course, uh, uh, Joe Farrell and, and David Lehman, these cats that came up in the 70s. Um, over the past 25, 30 years, flat out, the most significant um, saxophone player to me, hands down, is, is, is Branford. Hmm. I mean, there, there, there is no one playing the saxophone um, now for me that I want to hear more than Branford at any given, given point. That, wow. That's my guy. That, that is like, that's my, that's my guy. <laughs> right. I think he just played him. Aside, aside from that, I, I, I'm honored to say that, that Branford and I uh, have been, been very good friends for quite a while now. But I, nice. you know, I, that, that, that's a name I love to drop. But oh, Branford's a friend of mine. Yeah, that's, <laughs> but, but, that, but that's That's like, you, you name know, dropping. Huh? <laughs> that's, my, that's my cat. Yeah. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Wow. I'm playing Prince right now, so I'm just throwing these different cues. Squirrel meat! Mm-hmm. Oh, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that was supposed to mean to you guys. I'm jumping. Um, I see you, Ken, doing your thing. Uh, let's see. Oh, so, um, wanted to uh, get into, uh, again, another question sort of about Alan and James Brown and, and, sure. and sort of how mm-hmm. that what that meant to you. When he starts to work with Mr. Brown, Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have an opportunity? When is the opportunity that you get to go in there and see from an insider's perspective? I don't know if you got to set in on a rehearsal or saw shows from the um, side. I first met James when Alan was working at, at that radio station because he actually knew James for several years before he started working with him. Because okay. in those days, the... <clears throat> The business model of what it was like to be, you know, an entertainer, um, a performer, particularly R&B music, but the primary relationship was between the artist and the DJ. Mm. Because back in those days, it was really about getting your records played on the radio. And James Brown was extremely smart in forming relationships with DJs all over the country. And as a young DJ coming up in a market, now Richmond was not was not a big city, but it was a very, very important market in R&B radio because it was the next large metropolis just south of Washington. Um, and until you got down to Atlanta, like, our, you know, Richmond was a very, very important market in, in R&B um, music at that time. So James Brown would, 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 would play Richmond maybe sometimes, you know, in the mid, mid to late 60s, maybe sometimes two, three times a year. Hmm. So Alan got to know James because James was very interested in, in having relationships with all of the young DJs because he realized my ability to sell records and perform is completely dependent on whether the radio stations are playing my records. Mm, So Alan got to know James uh, at a very young age, and so very fortunately, I did too. So I got to start to hang out with James and his band when they would come to Richmond in as early as like 1965, 1966. Um, And I'm 14 years old. Wow. And I got the chance to, you know, be at sound. Well, you know, there weren't really sound checks in those days because the the, the PA systems in in, you know, in in concert halls those days really existed like maybe two microphones. That was about it. <laughs> um, but there might be a rehearsal before the you know before the gig, and and I'd get the opportunity to to 
sit backstage. So I mean, you know, when when you know that that's kind of you know it's kind of where I lost my musical virginity because <laughs> I mean when 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 you get the opportunity to stand on the side of a stage, and and a lot of times during the gigs, the actual performances, I wouldn't be out in the audience. I'd be standing on the side of the stage. Okay. And I get the opportunity to to see you know James had three drummers. He carried three drummers, and they all had you know there were three kits, three drum sets. And on certain songs, all three of those drummers were playing together. Wow. You know? And when you stand on the side of the stage and hear those three drummers kicking, and that was like John Starks, Jabbo, Clyde Stubblefield, and whoever mm-hmm. the third drummer might be. And you, hear, you, you know, when you hear that iconic rhythm section, and with like nine or ten horns, and I'm 14 years old, and I'm just, my jaw is just dropped into the floor, and I'm just saying, oh my God. You know, wow. What in the world is this? So yeah, I I had that absolutely wonderful opportunity to to be around James Brown and and look you know it was like after after a gig, James Brown would go in his dressing room and he'd hold court for several hours <laughs> really? with people you know fans that would come in but DJs and and all kinds of people and I'd get to hang out with him in his dressing room after gigs like that, and he'd always have a test pressing of whatever his next single was. Mm. And I remember, like, for example, so, you know, years later, by the time we had lived in Pittsburgh, and I remember one night, I guess it was around 1968 or something, so now I'm like 16 years, 16, 17 years old. And he was in Pittsburgh, and, and I'm hanging out with him backstage, you know, and in his dressing room, and, I, you know, I'd have to pinch myself. I said, oh, my God, I'm sitting here in a room with James Brown. He just got off the stage, you know, playing and, and kicking it in front of 12,000 people. And and he'd look at me and, and my, my nickname when I was a kid, I, I I didn't go by the name Eric, I went by the name Rick. So he knew me as Rick. So he'd say to me, Rick, how you doing? And I said, Mr. Brown, great show, glad to be here. And he said, Rick, hold on. He'd always have a little record player in the dressing room with him, a little stereo, a little portable stereo player, you know, record player to carry with him. And so hold on, Rick, got something to play for you. And he pulled out a, a test pressing and he put it on, it was a let's give it up or turn it loose. Yeah. You know, and like he said, this is the new one. And I'm thinking, it's going to be two or three weeks before anybody else hears this. But here I am like a 16-year-old kid sitting in his dressing room, and he's looking at me because he wants to see the reaction on my face. You know? And I'm like, my face is just like, I'm beaming. I said, this is the new one, huh? He said, yep. And I said, and I said Mr. Brown, got another hit here. <laughs> you know, I mean, like I'm telling him something he didn't know, but you know. So, yeah. The, 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 those, yeah. Those were the experiences that I obviously will treasure. Wow. For, for a lot of people, you could be done at that point. Like, Absolutely. You know, you know Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, okay. Whew. But I'm glad you're sharing this because this really puts uh, it just puts everything in perspective as we move forward. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the setup. So, man, here you are. You with James. James playing you unreleased joints like, yeah, yeah, what you think about that? You know, so exactly. (laughs) Now, we'll fast forward a little bit here. Uh, uh, Your brother goes on to work with Mr. James uh, as an, Mm -hmm. in in his organization. 
Uh, yeah, he was one of his. He was one of his national tour directors from okay. the late '60s through the early '70s for about, I guess, a three or four year period there. Oh, and that reminds me, I wanted to ask you uh, the James Brown movie uh, "Get It Up" that came out a few mm-hmm. years ago. Now, I love that movie, uh, but I'm mm-hmm. curious, what, what did you think about that movie? I've never seen it. Oh, really? Okay. Now that may yeah. say that says a lot, or, or maybe it doesn't. <laughs> Um, th- th- to be absolutely honest with you, um, you know, it's one of these things I'll probably catch up with one, one day. You know, there was a documentary that was done that was released on, on HBO. H- yes, that was excellent. Uh, at the same time. The documentary, of course, Al- Alan is one of the, 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 you know, primary talking heads in, in, mm-hmm. in, in that documentary, along with uh, um, Questlove and Christian McBride and, and you know, Maceo and, and others. And, and, you know, the documentary was absolutely just fabulous. Yes. I, I, I thought that was just one of the finest pieces that have ever been done. I am somebody that because um, there isn't anything about the James Brown story, I don't know. Okay. Okay. And, and, and having had the opportunity to have been around him, it's just not necessary for me to go see somebody pretend to be James Brown, even though, even though they may have done it very well. Right. Um, there wasn't anything that I was going to get from that movie that I didn't already know, so it wasn't. I just didn't feel it was essential for me to have to. I, I never, I never saw the Ray Charles biopic. Really, you know, okay. I saw clips from it, and and Jamie Foxx did an absolute phenomenal job of of impersonating Ray Charles, but I don't need to see that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that doesn't do me any good. I, I, I have I can... all the Ray Charles music. You know, I understand. I have I have Ray I have Ray Charles in my home. <laughs> you know. I hear you. So, I hear you. Yeah. That's funny because I can probably see if they ever and I'm sure they they would because Hollywood is what it is. They will be a Prince movie at some point and I'm sure a lot of fans will probably have a very similar sort of I don't need to you know what I mean like it, it's not it's not Prince. So it would exactly. be like I can go watch the real thing as opposed to uh you know the movie yeah, version. Yeah. All right. Yeah, okay. But, I was but, just curious. But I suspect you're right. I suspect there will one there will one day be a biopic on him. I, I just assume that that's a given. Yeah. All right. Well. Okay. So James, um, I wanted to get to the point where so the Prince connection comes in, and I know mm-hmm. Alan goes and works with Prince. I believe the 1999 tour. Um. That yeah. Right? That that's what he started on, and you know, the, 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 here's a curious small world thing. Um, Alan had, had left Pittsburgh and, and moved to New York in, in the early 80s, I guess around 1980, 81, and he was in New York. Um, and he got a gig being the road manager for the band Kiss. Mm-hmm. And now that is not a, you know, kind of an anomaly for Alan because, you know, that's, that's not a band of music that Alan would have any interest in listening to particularly, but he... But he needed a gig, <laughs> and he got a gig going out as, as a road manager for KISS. Um, coincidentally, the production manager for that tour, for the KISS tour, was a guy named Tommy Marzullo, who actually was from Pittsburgh. And Tommy Marzullo actually was aware of who I was because he used to come out and listen to bar bands that I played in. But coincidentally, at the same time that, that this KISS tour was out, the 1990 tour, 1999 tour was out on the road, and the same guy, Tommy Marzullo, had actually been the production manager for the 1999 tour at the same time. Oh. 
So Alan was already had already become a fan of Prince's music and was very you know very interested in 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 Prince. Um, Tommy came to Alan on the Kiss tour and mentioned that the road manager for Prince's tour had just been I guess he'd just been fired for whatever reason. Prince had a reputation for going through road managers like people go through underwear, apparently. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, Tommy, so Alan, Alan asked Tommy, he said, um, gee, now that's, that's, that's something that I would be interested in maybe, you know, having a hookup with, with Prince. And Tommy said, well, let me, let me see what's up. So Tommy came back to Alan and he said, you know, I think I could, I could introduce you to Prince's manager and maybe um, get you the gig with Prince. Only thing was is that Alan still had a few weeks to go with this Kiss tour. Well, uh, Gene Simmons came to Alan and said, "You know, you got an opportunity to go out on the on on, on the rest of the Prince tour, and they're going to be out for another month or so. Our tour only has another couple weeks to go, and pretty much everything is in place. We can cut you loose, and you can go." see if he can get the gig with Prince, which was absolutely a wow. wonderful thing for, for Gene Simmons to have done at that point. So yeah. Alan basically left the KISS tour. Two days later, he's with Prince, and that, that began his, his, his relationship with Prince. So, wow, well, yeah. sh- well, shout out to Gene Simmons then. Because, uh, yeah, really. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. wow. Um, mm-hmm. So when Alan goes to uh, work with Prince, and then, of course, you know, Purple Rain comes out, and we don't even, it's a whole other show to talk about Purple Rain, but I wanted to get to the point where Alan mentions you, uh, mentions Prince, you know, and say, Hey, my brother, saxophone player. Right, right. Well, um, the time had, this was, this was, oh, let me see, this is summer of 1984. Purple Rain, the album had just come out, the movie had not yet come out, the movie was. It's about a month before the movie was premiered, uh, but the album had just come out, and the time broke up. Mm-hmm. You know, Morris had split, uh, Morris Day had split, he was out of the picture, um, and so the group was, was just coming apart. And Prince was determined, I think, to, you know, want to have another group that he would produce that would kind of like maybe take up where the time left off. Uh, you know, an, an R&B-oriented band, but Prince did specifically come up with the idea of having the lead singers um, be white kids. Mm. I mean, it, it, was, it was almost like a business decision, you know, I said, I can take R&B music and put a different face on it and maybe broaden the appeal of what this music might be to a wider audience if I infuse it with just enough of a pop sensibility that could be true to both music. Um, so that was kind of the idea behind it. I, 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 now, re- regardless of that, it, 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 for whatever reason, um, Prince decided that he wanted to have a saxophone involved in, in, in this music. And he had mentioned that just happened, I guess, in passing to Alan. Um, at which point, of course, Alan just said to him, I said, well, coincidentally, I just happened to know somebody um, that plays the horn. So I guess at that point, Alan um, gave Prince a cassette or something of, of, of me playing something or other. So, um, and there was, fortunately, um, Prince told Alan, he said, uh, um, call your brother. 
hmm. and tell them that, um, you know, bring them up here. So, What was that first meeting like with Prince? Um, it, it, you know, for, first of all, just, just, just to give you a little, a little, little bit of background to kind of set it up, mm-hmm. I was not a fan of Prince's music, particularly. Um, I had very, very little knowledge of his music. I didn't own any of his albums. I, no, I, I did have the 1999 album. And I listened to it once or twice, and that was about it. I, I liked the song 1999. There really wasn't anything else on that album that really appealed to me particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really had very, very little knowledge other than what you know Alan had been telling me about about Prince. But there was really, you know, it just wasn't something that necessarily had resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of songs of his, like I, I like When Doves Cry, like 1999. Really, that was about it, because I really, I, I had no knowledge of, it, of any of his other recordings. Um, had you ever seen so him my, live at that point? Had you seen him play? No, never. Okay. Never, never, never had. Um, first, first, first time I ever saw, you know, saw a Prince performance was, was actually the movie Purple Rain. Oh, okay. Um, in the movie. Um, so at that point, I had no expectations or illusions about what this might become for me. Um, and it, and actually Alan had a, had a, it, it took Alan a couple of weeks to convince me that it was something that I should be work, be interested in. Hmm. Like I said, by then I was, I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was at a point in my career. I had, you know, I had been in bar bands for a lot of years and I was kind of burned out by that. So it was a point in my life where I was really kind of, not sure where I wanted to go next musically. Okay. And, and I, I didn't feel that I had quite the necessary um, skill set in, uh, to enable me to really excel. You know, I wasn't ready to pack up my horn and go to New York and jump in, in, in the jazz scene and try to see if I could, you know, survive. I, I really mm-hmm. didn't think that I was at a point that I was going to do, you know, do wow. that. Um, so I, I was really kind of, you know, at a turning point. So all of a sudden, this opportunity just completely falls in my lap, because playing playing with an artist like Prince and playing with that kind of music was nothing that I really ever aspired to. It was never that I ever thought, well, this is this is a direction in music that I want to go into. It was nothing that really, you know, I, I had really thought of. Um, Quick question, Eric. What did? Or, at, at that time, what did you see Prince's music as? You said this kind of music. I'm curious what you mean. It was it was just pop music to me. Okay. You know, with 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 uh, um, like I say, I, I really didn't have much depth of, of of knowledge of what. So the songs that you know, the several songs of his that I had heard, um, was just okay. Here's here's a, here's a pop guy that obviously has a different sound. Um, his singing, the the, the manner of, of the sound of his group, uh, is certainly distinctive. Um, but you, you know, for example, I, I could, li- I could listen to a song like Little Red Corvette and, and certainly recognize that, okay, here's an absolutely masterful piece of pop songwriting mm. and, and, and production. I mean, that's a, just an absolute phenomenal piece of, of, of pop music. That just wasn't the kind of music that I listened to. Gotcha. Yeah. It, it, it just like no more, you, you, you know, like, I mean, I go back and, and I could say that, that. You know, I, you know, and all of the music that I've talked about, I've never mentioned, for example, the Beatles. 
now how how are you going to be uh, you know somebody growing up in the 60s getting into music and not be exposed to any and everything that the beatles did right you know now there is music of the beatles that i absolutely love but there's an awful lot of beatles music that i could care less about you know now i understand you. so you know, so, so and, and, and at the same time that I was, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, the music that I was listening to, at that same time, you had iconic groups like the Grateful Dead, uh, Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. The Who, bands like that. I wasn't into that music at all. Okay. I mean, that, that stuff was just not even on my radar screen. So I looked at Princess like, okay, obviously there is an R&B and funk component to this music. But it ain't funk like George Clinton. <laughs> and that's what, you know. <laughs> I'm going to let Eric what, say that. <laughs> you know, I ain't touching it. <laughs> yeah. No, and, I hear you. and to be honest, you. you know, in, in the early 80s, the, 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 you know, my iconic pop artist in the early 80s was Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Oh, wow. That's what I loved. Okay. So, you know, so I, pro- I saw Prince as, well, he's just, he's, just, he's, just, he's just a little too pop for me. Mm. Now, Alan is telling me, he says, look, said, you got to understand something. This guy is a remarkable musician. And I said, if you get involved with him, I am sure you are going to find something that is going to be so fascinating and, and, and worthwhile for you to be a part of. And that's what I held on to. I okay. said, okay. I, like I say, I, uh, you know, I, it was kind of an open book. So I had no reason to say, oh, this cat's just a, you know, this cat's a, you know, he's going to be like a, a, just a one, a one joke act. You know, no, it was like, so I said, okay, cool. If Alan is telling me that, then that means something. Mm-hmm. Because I know enough about Alan's understanding of the music and, 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 you know, so much about the music that I was introduced to and fell in love with was because of, of because of Alan. Um, I may have never even become a musician if I hadn't been introduced to that music at such a young age because Alan was into it. Mm. Um, so that was worth my while to, to come up here. <laughs> Coincidentally, um, I also, like I said, my, my mother was from the Twin Cities, and we used to visit in the Twin Cities when I was a kid because... Uh, I had an aunt and uncle that lived in the Twin Cities. I had cousins, and I hadn't seen them in a long time. So I said, okay, cool, I'll come up to Minneapolis. I'll get a chance to spend time with my aunt and uncle, my cousins I have seen, haven't seen. And, oh, yeah, I'm going to go in, the, in a recording studio and do something with this guy, Prince, and we'll see what happens. Wow. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting the way you, you sort of frame in this and you being a musician. I almost kind of wonder, did a lot of people... Uh, musicians, and I, and I think of like a Rick James or something, where they just saw Prince, and and the way you sort of framed it, you know, it was a pop musician, a pop guy, pop music, and you know, you hear maybe the bigger songs that were on the radio. You know, you mentioned 1999 and mm-hmm. When Doves Cry, but then you know some of the other stuff that wasn't maybe the super radio songs, but what I wouldn't necessarily consider pop. But I can see how it might be like I don't know too much about this guy. But all the stuff that the people who are really into him know, they can only just kind of tell me like, no, dude, there's something deeper there. You know, this guy is a, is a dope musician. It's way more than what seems to be presented on the mainstream platform if you, if you take oh, a- the chance absolutely. to look, right? A- a- absolutely. And, and, and that's, that's, you know, I mean, obviously, after all of the years that I've worked with Prince, I would even go so far as to say that 
my ability, my understanding of what a remarkable and at times brilliant musician he is, isn't necessarily something that I would have been able to conclude even from listening to all of the recorded music that he's mm. done. Wow. Okay. Um, and that's what kind of drew me into it. Now, now the, the, the other thing that for me, now you have to understand something. I'm, I'm, when I started, when I met Prince, I was 32 years old and already had a career in music um, professionally of almost 15 years by then. Um, and, I, I mean, I had my own R&B funk and jazz bands in Pittsburgh, and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, while nobody outside of Pittsburgh ever heard of them, they were some of the more popular dance bar bands in Pittsburgh. Uh, all right. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and I had gone through music school and, and, you know, and the level of musicianship of the teachers and people in music school were on such a high level, you know, I mean, whether it was classical music and jazz and things like that. So I had already been exposed to musicianship of the absolute highest level. Mm -hmm. Um, So Prince wasn't the first remarkable musician that I had ever had the wonderful opportunity to be associated with. He was the next one. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you're 32 years old, you're already middle-aged when it comes to pop music. Or, or, you know, music. Right. So, so, you know, I understand why, for example, um, you know, the musicians of, of for, for example, the Revolution, like Bobby Z and Matt Fink and Wendy and, and, and Lisa and those guys who were in their early 20s, mm-hmm. who are being defined as the musicians that they are because of their association with Prince. Mm-hmm. And this is the first guy that they're exposed to. And that you know, so I get and understand why their absolute devotion and love for Prince's music, you know, is what it is. But I came in from a different perspective, having, like I say, I already had my princes. They were right. they were Ray and James mm-hmm. and Miles and Wayne Shorter and Coltrane. You know, those were my princes. Those, so I was already defined as a musician. You know, who I was going to be as a musician had already kind of been determined by that. So it wasn't as if Prince's music was going to necessarily change me in any significant way, and it really didn't. Um, everything that I, and, and I, 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 I apologize for this sounding awfully self-serving and arrogant, but the fact was is that any and everything that I needed to know as a saxophone player and a musician to be able to do whatever Prince ever needed to me needed me to do in service of his music, I knew how to do that the first day I met him. Mm. But that was a function as much of just my age and the experiences Experience. that I had already had. Now, my involvement with Prince was incremental because I went into him that first day, and, and this was, was for songs for, for, for the family album. And I, I, I remember, you know, I'm, I'm kind of anal in, in how I keep track of, of events in, in my life and career. But also for business reasons, I kept a journal of ev- almost every recording session I ever did with him. Wow. Um, that, that journal's so probably I, worth I, about a couple houses right now. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's my private journal, you know, maybe, maybe, well, you, you know, maybe, maybe I'll write a book about it someday. I don't know. But anyway, um... And, and also, also, just from a business sense, I kept track of it because I wanted to be sure that the session that checks that I got, right. you know, reflected the actual time <laughs> that I put in on every given session. So, you know, I had, a, I had another motive. Um, Purse from, first, from, as we from, say. Yeah, from a business sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I, remember, I, I remember that first day because I um, walked in, in, into, in, into the recording room with him 
And Alan introduced me to him, and Prince said to me, he said, I have a cassette of some of the songs that I'd like to work with you on. Um, maybe you want to take the cassette and listen to it for a couple days. And I, I, I wasn't trying to be cocky or arrogant or anything, but I was just kind of of a mind that, well, I'm here, I got my horn, um, I'm ready to roll if you are. <laughs> and Prince kind of looked at me and he kind of smiled, and he said, okay, let's hit it. And that was it. So li- literally between the time I shook his hand and Alan said, Prince, this is my brother Eric. Eric, this is Prince. Literally within five minutes after that, tape was rolling and we were, we were gone. And you said these were songs now, with the family? This, these were songs with the family because that, that was what I was initially brought in to, to be a part of. And, and real um, quick, that, was, this as, was this before Purple Rain came out or after? or Where, where was this at? It was, the, the album Purple Rain had just come out like a month before that. The movie was going to be premiered about a month after this was, I can tell you the date. It was July 2nd, 1984. Wow. So let me yeah. just get, again, and this is yeah. the master class for the Prince fans. So when you, you drop in dates, so we really got to get. So you're oh, saying sure. that yeah. y'all started working on the family tracks. This is. Well, he had, he had the tracks done. This okay, is the right. thing. He, and, and I'll tell you the four, I'll tell you the four songs. Uh, for people who are into the family album and know those songs backwards yes. and forwards, the first, the first, the very first song that I did with Prince was the song that uh, uh, was called "Desire." Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> now it was actually had an alternate title. He was referring to the song at that point as "Ecstasy," which is a word that's in the lyric. But 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 mm. but, but, but between that, so as we recorded that, that song, that's what it was referred to that day, "Ecstasy." By the time the album was released a year later, the song title had been changed to Desire. We did that. Wow. Then next we did High Fashion and Mutiny. And then we did the instrumental song that was called Susanna's Pajamas. That was, was, was wow. on the album. Those were the first, those were the first songs, <laughs> the first four we did. Heads are blown right He had the right tracks now. done. Now, what I'm listening to now, Paul Peterson had not yet put his vocals on it. Mm. Prince's vocals were on the songs. Interesting. Now, so, uh, that, some of that stuff has leaked out in terms of with the Prince vocals. Oh, yeah, that vocals. stuff has been bootlegged. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's been out there for years. Yeah. So yeah. that's interesting. Uh, I, I, we had uh, Susan Rogers on last week, and, and we've oh, talked about... Oh, sure. About, she, she, she was the engineer on that session. Yeah. Yep. When we talked about some of those songs, now the song Mutiny, from mm-hmm. what you remember, now that you... You saying that when this song was actually put together it makes a lot of sense. So I'm assuming I can really say that that song was an answer to Morris leaving the group. Oh, absolutely! It was it was his message to Morris and to Jesse Johnson, Jesse, yeah. who had also just left. It was his basically telling them, "This was your ship. Now it's mine. This right. is mutiny. I'm taking over." It was Morris? Yeah. Did you get? absolutely that's absolutely what that was about yeah wow. <clears throat> that's crazy um and i think and then like the song desire i'm just, we're just gonna go in uh mm-hmm. did they so they took out the drums on the release version is that what it was or something um because like? i heard a version where I, there's the drums throughout the song i mean yeah i think the drums i think the drums are more more prominent in in, okay. in the original rough mix that i that i have from that session um because none of, none of the strings were on it yet you know the, mm-hmm. the the claire fisher string arrangements weren't added on for a couple months after you know 
after that. And it was actually uh, uh, Susanna Melvoin and, and Wendy that, that came to Prince with the suggestion of, um, you know, hiring Claire Fisher was, you know, absolutely one of the most well-known and respected um, jazz composers and, 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 and arrangers in California to the string arrangements. And it was really those string arrangements, I, th- I think, that really gave that album such a distinctive mm-hmm. um, flavor. Um, I, th- I think that the string arrangement is some of the, one of the most brilliant parts of, of, of that music. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, he, you know, he actually he there there was um, there was a very prominent bass bass guitar that Prince had that was on the original versions of High Fashion and mm-hmm, Mutiny, mm-hmm. and he took the bass off. Why, when, why do you think he did that? Like he because because it had been it, it had been successful with When Doves Cry. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's now. Personally, I wish he had left the bass on, because the bass because the bass that he played on those tracks was absolutely killer, it was nasty. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, he was ripping it up. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of wish that he had kept the bass on on, but uh, but he didn't. Yeah. Uh, so, a couple questions. Then, if this is the first things mm-hmm. you worked on, how is it translated to you? Uh, the horn lines and different things are those things that you came up, or does he does he sit in here like um, humming them to you, or what? Though, well, let me see. Des- Desire was basically his line, um, the, the the basic horn line. I, I think it was. I think it was doubling. I'm, I'm not not a hundred percent sure if I, I haven't listened to it in a long the record in a long time. It might have been doubling a synth a synthesizer oh, okay. line that might have already been there. Gotcha. So it was kind of an obvious thing to, to you know for that song to just double that. Now, obviously, all of the the, the solos were mine because they were all just improvised. So basically, he said, "Okay, at this spot, I, I need you to, to like do just an improvised solo, or whatever." Um, high fashion, of course. There, there's there, there's no horn lines, and it's just it's just a long solo at at the end of the song. But I do recall that that that. Um, he had a specific way that he wanted me to set the solo up. Um, I, I, I think I, if, if I recall that he said to me, he said, when, when, when you come in with the solo at the end of the song, I want you to just concentrate on three or four different notes and just kind of keep it based and, and find kind of a, a, a motif of some sort based on that. And then when you, after a few choruses or whatever, I'll give you a cue and cut you loose, and then from there you can take it wherever you want to go with it. Um, wow. Which, which I, I, I think was was was, a, was an interesting idea of uh, of how to set the solo up to you know the way it went. Um, Mutiny, the little horn riff, and that that was his. Um, once again, there was a solo in the middle of it that was mine, and there was a solo at the end of it that was that was just improv you know just just improvised. Um, but the, but the but the main you know the that that line that was that was him that was his. <laughs> um, Susanna's pajamas. It was just a track, and basically he just said, "Just play." And so I said, "So, so there's no melody here, right?" He said, "No, there's not going to be a melody. You're just basically going to start soloing from the beginning and just solo through the whole song." So that's basically what that was. It was just. Uh, it was just. There are a couple little things in the middle of it where he wanted me to double. Uh, something that the bass was doing, um, but other than that, bass. So, so I think I think what happened is is he said, let me let me skip ahead to this part because there's a part that I want you to double what the bass is doing. So I listened to that and jotted down what what the line was. So then we backed it up to the beginning. He said, just so, so you know where that comes. And I said, yeah, I got it. I know, I know where that's going to come in. He said, okay, cool. Just roll it and you got it. 
And so basically, we, he, he hit play, and, and I just started playing, and, and basically it was one take. That, that, that was that. So, one take. Wow. Yeah. Now, now, hearing those songs, what do you think now about him, his music? Did you still sort of like, oh, this this pop dude is trying something different, or you're like, whoa, I didn't know it was like this, or? Well, it like I say, it was it was incremental. I I just you know I I came away from you know here's here's the thing. Anything could have happened that day. Now now he had told Alan that you know that based on on whatever Alan had played for him of mine, and I don't know I I don't really know what he played or how much you know whether he gave him like an hour's worth or if he gave him two minutes. I don't know. Um, whatever Prince heard that, that gave him reason to want to call me and, and bring me up to Minneapolis to do the session, that was no guarantee that once we get in the room together, that necessarily he was, you know, it, it could have been that he could have heard me play with him in the studio that day and said to himself, you know, Eric really plays well, but maybe this just isn't what I'm looking for. Mm. That could have happened. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if it had really been something that I had heard the music and thought, man, you know, this just isn't where I'm at. You know, I would have given him everything that I could have given him, but it, nece- but it wouldn't necessarily have been something that I would have gone away and said, well, gee, you know, that was cool, that was session, but I don't know if this is a relationship that's really going to be worth my while, you know, um, going after. Fortunately... For everybody concerned, he seemed to be thrilled with what I did for him that day, and I had an awful lot of fun, and I genuinely liked those songs. Mm. Okay. You know, now, now, High Fashion and Mutiny were much more traditional R&B funk songs, so they were kind of more in my wheelhouse. Okay. Um, Susanna's Pajamas was kind of like a fusion-y kind of little jazzy track, so it enabled me to just kind of do my thing. Um, Desire was an interesting song because rhythmically, it's almost like a country and western song. It's like a Texas two-beat. It's a really odd song. Um, but, it, but, but it had something to it that really just kind of captured my imagination. I said, this, this, you know, that's an odd song, but I really dug it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very different. So I came away from that afternoon, you know, I mean, you know it was about two, two and a half hours. You know, we were done. Um, so I came away with that just basically saying, that was fun. That was really cool. It was really interesting working with him. And, but it wasn't like I came away thinking like, oh my God, this is like, you know, this is God's gift to music. Okay. Because first of all, the totality of what Prince is as a musician, I'm not going to be able to get everything that he's about from just one recording session. You know, it would almost be insulting if I came away and said, oh, my God, now I get it. No, there's so much more that he, you know, it, it was like he has so much to give as a musician that you're only going to really get an opportunity to understand everything that he can be about over a period of time. Okay. So I did that session and I was, my plan was I was just going to hang around for a few weeks in, in, in Minneapolis and spend time with Alan and, and, and uh, my family. Um, and I was going to go back home to Atlanta because I had already, it was already understood that whatever was going to come of this, this project, this family album, it wasn't going to happen for a while. 
Purple Rain, the movie was scheduled to be premiered in a month, and then soon after that, he was going to be going on on tour with his band. So it was likely that this family album may not even see the light of day for another year. And I'm thinking, well, you know, this is rock and roll. A lot can happen in a year. He could lose interest in this whole thing, and that could be the end of it. So I'm not going to like sit here and, and get my hopes up as to whatever this is going to happen. I'm just going to take this a step at a time. So I was still hanging in Minneapolis, and about a week later, um, Prince apparently asked Alan, he said, is Eric still in town? And he said, yeah, yeah. He says, well, I, uh, I've got another song for him to come in and play on. So I came back to the studio that day. This was about a week, week and a half after the, the first session. And he had uh, Nothing Compares to You. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And um, so he did that, and I put, put, the, put the solo on that. Um, and then there was another song we did a few days after that that didn't end up on the album. It was, it was, it was just a straight-up, really hardcore funk jam that was called Feline. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's been out there in bootlegs, and, and, and uh, um, it, 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 didn't, it didn't end up on the album. It was just an outtake. It, 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 just, it, it didn't make the final cut for the album, but it's, it's been, you know, I'm sure all of the diehard Prince fans right, have, right. have a version of that somewhere. And, and then after that, um, he had his band in town because they were rehearsing for a short set that they were going to play at the premiere party in L.A. Uh, on, uh, um, on the night that Purple Rain was premiered in L.A., there was a there was an after party for that and and the band him and the band were going to do like a short 20 minute performance of, of a few songs so he had the band with him uh at that time and they were rehearsing that stuff so one afternoon i was just hanging around it was i think the day before that i was going to go back home to atlanta and he asked me to just come in and, and jam with the band so we you know it was my that was that was the first time that i actually played with him when he was actually playing with him and his band, we jammed for like maybe an hour one afternoon. And the next day I flew home to Atlanta and basically it was just like, okay, well, um, I'll, I'll see what happens next. You know, there were no promises. I kept paid for the sessions and it was like, okay, cool. And, and, and it was like, whatever happens next is going to happen. Uh, and if it happens, then, then I'll, 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 you know, I'll take it as it comes. But there was no, um, you know, guarantee of, of any continued involvement other than that. Um, I think later that year, and in, in I think around October, um, they were, him and, he and the band were in, in, in production rehearsals because they were just ready, they were, they were going to hit the road with the Purple Rain Tour in a few weeks. Uh, and I came up for about a week or so in October, and we ended up doing one more song, uh, was the, it, was, it, it was the other instrumental on the family album, the one that was called Yes. Ah. Um, and, and, and we did that. And then I went back home to Atlanta and, um, you know, waited, waited to see what happened, happens next. <laughs> so. Just curious, back to Yes, did you guys cut that live or did he already have that done when you came and worked on it? He had the track. He, oh, okay. he had the track done for that. In fact, um, that was the first occasion, well, no, actually Feline, he did. He, he basically had the track... And he just left, left the track with me. And he left and he said, do whatever you want with it. Mm. It's yours. Just, just what it, what it is. So, so everything that was on, all the horns, all the, the melody line, 
the arrangement um, um, was, was, was mine on that. Now, the, the, the song was actually highly edited because the original track was almost seven, seven minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the version as, as it appeared on, on the album was edited down to, I think, like maybe three minutes, three and a half minutes or something like that. So. Wow, that was the that's a cold track. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, it was it was, it was a cool track. It, you know, he, he had he had, he, had, he had all the gizmos going on the guitars and keyboards right. on that. You know. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Well, so you you say you um, the band the, the revolution was gearing up for the tour. Now I'm I listen. I'm on the outsider, so I'm gonna give you my side, and you can jump in with the details. I just remember looking at Purple Rain. Uh, was it? Purple Rain Tour live Syracuse home video concert mm-hmm. uh, and certain point you come in uh, playing I believe and, and Eddie M was up there if I'm not mistaken yeah yeah the the what 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 he would do you know she, Sheila and 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 her band which Eddie Eddie M was a member of of, of Sheila's band you know they were the opening act mm-hmm. on on the Purple Rain tour and I was. They, they, uh, I, I was like I said, I was still living in Atlanta. I believe that tour started in Detroit, and their next stop was Greensboro, North Carolina. They were in Greensboro for several nights, and I was going to be driving from Atlanta down to Florida, where my parents lived. It was right before Thanksgiving of 1984, and and um, so I detoured and and stopped in Greensboro just just to check out the show because I I had never seen Prince perform live. Um, and Alan said, "Yeah, come out and come out and check check out the show." So I did. And Prince, at, you, know, you know, once Prince knew I was there, he asked me. He said, um, "Come on up and, and and sit in with us." And I said, "Well, on on what? I mean, you know, and I don't know any of this music." <laughs> and he said, "No, I said it's just on on the encore we do um, Baby I'm a Star," and and the routine was is that he would. Re- routinely bring members of Sheila's band, including Eddie M and Sheila would come out on Baby I'm a Star. And, you know, Sheila would be playing timbales or whatever. So, so, so once they, you know, kind of got through the song, then Prince would vamp on the song for maybe five, ten minutes. Mm-hmm. So he asked me to come up and just play and just solo on, on, on the out vamp of Baby I'm a Star. So I did that a couple nights and then I went home and then a few months later I came out to L.A., and he then asked me to stay out on the tour for the remaining the, the, the couple months that were left on, on the rest of the tour. Mm. And then he started bringing me up on more songs. On Baby, I'm a Star, he brought me up um, on a couple things in the middle. And, and so by the time they did that, the, 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 the concert in Syracuse, by then I had been out on the tour for a while, just coming up and, and, oh. and you know, playing a solo on a couple songs during, during, the, during the show by then. So. Wow, <clears throat> that so and that that was a monumental tour, man. I mean, like I, I oh, had got yeah. ch- I got a chance to see that myself, and you know yeah. that went all over the place, the United States. Yeah, you got to shut it yeah. down. And again, this is I, I got to give you the outsider's point. So, other than seeing things on MTV, you know, there was mm-hmm. no internet, so a lot of the stuff that's going on, I have no clue what's going on behind the scenes. You, you, right, you yeah. know. Uh, so one of the first things I remember, you know, around the world in a day comes out, uh, mm-hmm. Raspberry Ray video. And then I think the next sort of thing that I remember seeing was the uh, MTV interview 
uh, you know, live out there from Paris. You guys were recording where they were recording. Yeah, I, movie. yeah it was. It was actually. It was at, Yeah, in in it was actually in Nice. Nice, but, but yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that uh, America performance for a lot right. of us was the first glimpse that yo this band has uh, grown and there's sort of a changing. The sound is sort of kind of going to, in a different direction. And and it was mm-hmm. it was some badass shit, man. It was like uh, I, I think. Uh, your partner, Mr. Bliss, was well, that was it, that was it, yeah was it, on on that video was me and Eddie yeah um yeah okay Eddie okay got it mm-hmm. but that was such a dramatic change in the style to me a little bit it was like I was like whoa the horns is really going in and the, the rhythm guitar I think I don't know if Miko was in the band playing at that no he, was, he wasn't he wasn't there yet okay no he, yeah mm-hmm. but talk to me a little bit about how, how is the band transitioning at, at this point. Was it different? Well, well from what the what region? happened? You know, we 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 came off the road. Um, at, at you know, this was now spring of '85. The Purple Rain. You know, we, we finished the Purple Rain tour, and basically, my next thing was is that we were going to go into rehearsals that summer. The because the family album was finished and was actually finally going to be released. So the family album came out in summer of '85, and we we had a top ten hit with uh, Strong Springs, Springs of Passion. Mm-hmm. So the plan was is that the family. Um, you know the, the 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 group, the family, as far as what the group was, was Paul Peterson, Susanna Melvoin, myself, Jelly Bean Johnson, and and Jerome, Jerome Benton. Now we had to put together a, a band. You know, we had mm-hmm. to find, find bass player, guitar players, keyboard players, and that's what Miko came, Miko came into to the family. He was going to be the guitar player in the family. Oh, okay. um, Susanna and Wendy's brother uh, Jonathan, who of course tragically passed away in in, in the mid nineties. He was one of the keyboard players in, in, in the band with the family. Uh, so we were rehearsing that summer for, ostensibly, the plan was that there was going to be a tour in the fall of 85. It was going to be Sheila as the headliner, Sheila and her band as the headliner, the family, and the group Maserati, which was that group that, that uh, uh, Mark Brown, Brown had, had produced. And, and, you know, they had that one album. Um, and the family, we did one gig at, at First Avenue, at mm-hmm. the you know, First Avenue Club here. And then shortly after that, Paul decided to, to leave, leave the group and, and, and pursue other things. So the, so the family project fell apart at that time. Now, in the meantime, I had already started doing some reporting with Prince for his own music. Okay. Um, so, you know, the... the the question was, if, if I'm now doing recording for his own music, at what point in time was he going to maybe then ask me to become a member of his band? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nothing had been really stated about that, because basically the family was still an entity at that point. But after, after Paul quit the band, and it was around that time that, that he was in Nice, because he was filming uh, uh, the movie uh, Under the Cherry Moon. So that's when we all came over to Nice, and and then he decided to you know to do this this video of America, um, and he decided at that point that yeah he 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 wanted to you know use me and and Eddie M uh, on that. So we were in the rehearsals for that uh, couple the night before, and basically. Um, you know, there was going to be spot solo spots and some of the little horn riffs that 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 you know he came up for for us to do and and then said, okay, here's where, where it was going to be. Eric is going to solo here. Eddie's going to solo here. But in the middle of it, I I 
I told Prince, I said, you know, I've, I've got an idea for, for a more extended horn line that might, might work at certain parts of the song. So he said, okay, what is it? And I played it for him, and he said, yeah, that's cool. So, so teach it to Eddie, which I did. And that's kind of the crazy horn line that, that kind of just is played over and over again as, you know, through, in, in between the solos. That, that it, it's just a crazy-ass horn line. <laughs> um, and and uh, so, yeah, so, so that was my, my little contribution to that. But, but yeah, it, it, it certainly for people who were used to a particular... Um, you know, the, you know the, the, the most distinctive thing about Prince's sound and about his band and his music before that really was his use of keyboards, I mm-hmm. think, more than anything else. Um, so now, obviously, he's, he's bringing in instruments that for the first five, six years of, of his music he had never used before. So by definition, that certainly was going to be something very different for you know for the for the prince fans it's like you know so what 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 you know what the hell are these what what the hell are these guys playing and what are they doing oh it was dope man i mean it was like badass it was like oh um i wanted to go back to the family because i'm glad you brought that up and i know uh you guys with f deluxe and we'll talk about that but that original lineup that you, you talked about in the album and the album was in my opinion was fabulous one of one of prince's uh greater protege type albums if you want to call it. i mean that was a the, the album was dope well it, yeah, was a you lot know, of it could it, it could have been a, it could have been a prince album i mean yeah. you know for you know i love paul and Suzanne and everything and, and their vocals on it are, are you know really certainly set it apart from what it is but you know it's like as i said i heard all of that music when i was putting my parts on it with prince's vocals on it mm. So it could have been a prince. It could have been a, a great prince album, you know. You know. Well, so when when uh, when Rick, I'm gonna say Rick, <laughs> when uh, Saint Paul leaves mm-hmm. to go be a rich man, uh, which right. I, yeah. I, I dug that album too. But uh, how did that? How did the group feel when he left? Uh, did you guys? I mean, would you, did you understand it or at the time? Well, was, I you know our 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 you know I'm I'm sure our our first reaction was. Um, that okay we didn't expect we didn't see this coming you know and and obviously it was like okay well that's the end of this project so whatever whatever this was going to be it's not going to be i had you know um jerome was already you know was already in nice because you know he was the co-star with prince and under Mm -hmm. the cherry moon so that relationship was you know jerome's relationship with prince was certainly going to be there um I really never had a discussion with with Susanna or, or or Jellybean for a while after that. My initial reaction was, okay, this is a drag because this was a really cool album, and we were, I guess we were kind of looking forward to the possibility of of, of going out on tour and seeing what was going to happen with this. But since I had already been doing these things with Prince and his music. Alan immediately told me, he said, I wouldn't be too concerned because I have a feeling that Prince is going to immediately just put you in his band. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what happened. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, 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 I was very, very, very fortunate to, you know, have been in that situation. Um, and, and it was very shortly after that, then, of course, that Prince then decided to not only just add me, but to expand, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, one day the revolution was five people. The next day it was 10 people. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and, and, and man, that, that revolution, uh, when you guys go on the hit and run tour, the original mm-hmm. hit mm-hmm. and run tour, 
Uh, that, I have a term that I use called the head buster. That lineup, when you guys hit the stage and started playing, it, it was a head buster uh, to the fans. Uh, the music, man, the, the presentation of it. Uh, you guys had the suits. You know, everybody, yeah. the hair was yeah. cut. You know, Prince mm-hmm. was on a whole different sort of, uh, almost like a different character at that time. He was smiling. You could really see everything. Uh, yep. He didn't really even play that much. He was he, more you know, fan he, leader. On, on that tour, I mean, here's a guy who's known as an iconic um, guitar player. Mm-hmm. On that whole tour, the only song he would routinely ever play guitar on was either Purple Rain and we didn't do Purple Rain every night on that show, on that tour. We, we, we did it some nights, but some nights we didn't do Purple Rain. And occasionally on an encore, we would come out and, he, and we would play a whole lot of shaking going on. The old Jerry yeah. Lee Lewis song. <laughs> yes. And occasionally he might pick up a guitar just to play some rock guitar. But other than that, he did not play guitar on that show at all. Wow. Yeah, it was that, if, there was one thing, if there was one thing that was kind of like, oh, my God, he didn't play guitar on this show. Yeah, it was kind of odd. I mean, now his his rig was always up there, you know. So, so I mean, obviously, at any given time, if he wanted to pick up the guitar, he was, you know, he was more than, you know, more than welcome to do that, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But, but yeah, it it it. Uh, um, I I laughed. I uh, Alan and I we called that the anti tour, and mm-hmm. that was a throwback to George Clinton. After George Clinton had done all his theatrical tours, like the you know the Mothership tour with all the you know with the mothership coming mm-hmm. down and all the you know you know all the theatrical production george did a tour um in support of of um one nation under a groove when that song came out that was just stripped down no theatrics mm. the band went out on stage and they were all wearing army fatigues <laughs> and it was called the anti-tour wow. you know it was like no we're this, you know we we did the big theatrical production now we're mm-hmm. just going to come out and play and it was the anti tour, and that's what I called the rev- that's what I called the hit and run tour because there was no theatrics; it was just a band on a bare stage coming out and playing music. Yes, and and, and it, it, it was, was it was incredible. Like uh, I wanted to ask you uh, the horn. So I'm trying to remember some of the things that really kind of blew me away. I remember the song like another. For, 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 first, oh, of all, first of all, let me let me say that sure. that that sure. Prince came to me as soon as he decided to expand the band. And the first thing he came to me, he said, he said, um, I want to add a trumpet. Okay. And he said, do you know someone? I said, oh, and I, I, I absolutely. Um, Matt Liston, who was known as Atlanta Bliss, that mm-hmm. was the, the nickname that, that Prince. Um, Matt um, was actually from Pittsburgh. Um, we were living together. I, w- I was living with Matt and his wife in Atlanta because they had moved to Atlanta before I did. But Matt and I went to music school together in Pittsburgh. So I had played in bands with Matt for almost 10 for over 10 years oh, wow. before we started working with Prince. So Matt and I were, we had been a section, you know, for years and years mm. before, you know, we'd ever heard the name Prince. So Matt was obviously the, you know, my go-to guy. I said, no, I know exactly the guy that's going to be perfect for this. And, okay. and Matt was, I mean, Matt, Matt is, um, he kept me honest. You know, hmm. Matt was so good that he, Matt made me sound so good. <laughs> so you know, right. I sounded good because Matt was so good, you know. <laughs> so and anyway, I just I just got to put that out there. That, that, 
Yeah, know. shout out to Matt. I actually talked to him a yeah. few months ago. That section, you know, because so. first, you know, first of all, he's the lead voice in the section. Just by nature, the trumpet is the higher pitched instrument than a mm-hmm. tenor or baritone. So, I mean, his sound is what really helps define what the sound of that horn section was. Okay. So, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, so just like, so that's interesting. So you guys already have a chemistry. You already have a trust between the two of you. That you can oh, come, absolutely. Yeah, come into absolutely. this together. Yeah, uh, yeah. We knew, yeah, you know, I mean, Prince could throw something at us, and Matt and I could instantly just interpret it and say, okay, we know what to do with this. Done. Okay, mm. ready, let's go. Yeah. Uh, a particular song I wanted to ask about this period, uh, Another Lover Holding a Hit. You know, mm-hmm. on the album version, that sort of middle part bridge thing where you guys do on the horn is not on there, but on that 12-inch. Right. There, there, yeah, there are no horns. Yeah, on the 12-inch, we added it later, yeah. Mm-hmm. Who, who came up um, with that? Well, that that was that was my line. It 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 was um, when that section comes up in the song. When we were in rehearsals, Prince just said to me, "When we get to this point, Eric, just just you know, it's an eight or nine bar phrase or whatever in the middle of the song. He says, uh, Eric, just play play a solo there." And I went home after the rehearsal, and I thought, you know, I, I got a lot of solos. And I thought maybe maybe I'd write a, write something that would be a little different rather than me just coming out and playing a solo there every night. So I came up with that line and and brought it in the next day and and showed it to Matt. And that was that was a little you know it 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 wasn't that difficult a line for a, for a sax for a trumpet. That was a very difficult line, but Matt nailed it. I mean, and Matt's a really good sight reader. So I mean, I'd written it out and gave it to Matt the next the next morning before. Um, you know, before Prince got there for rehearsal, we would usually get there 10, 15, you know, half hour before rehearsal would start just to warm up our horns or whatever. And, and, and I said, I got a part here that, that we got we to look at before, you know, before the rest of the band gets here. And, you know, it took Matt about five or 10 minutes to get that under his fingers. And once he did, he had it nailed. Mm. So when Prince came in that day, I said to Prince, I said, um, at that part where on, on another level where you wanted me to play a solo, I said, I, I wrote, I wrote something for it. So check it out and tell me if, 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 if it's cool. So, and, and he, obviously he dug it. So that, that, that's what we did there. And, and instead of just like another, another tenor solo. Yeah. That, that is a cold part. I remember hearing that, uh, it, it's on that, uh, the video from the Detroit show from the Detroit gig. Yeah. And me, yeah. I saw that. I was like, what? Now I got, I got to tell you, I got to tell you that of all of the tours that I did with Prince, you know, the sign of the times tour, love sexy tour, my favorite four or five minutes of any show was at the end of that. When Lisa would come down and sit at the piano Mm. Prince would go off stage. Now, unfortunately, on the um, Detroit gig that everyone has seen, that's edited. Mm-hmm. Because that piano solo that Lisa's playing actually went on for about three or four minutes, sometimes even five minutes. Oh, Prince wow. would leave the stage, he was changing clothes, and Lisa would come down and play that solo. Now, I had another set of horn lines that I had written to, to, to accompany Lisa behind her solo. But that solo of Lisa's, to me, was... There was nothing that I look forward to every night more than that solo because I absolutely love the way Lisa plays mm. and her distinctive harmonic flavor that she brought to the music that when she was there 
was so personified in what she played. And for anybody that that might get a chance to have ever heard, uh, um, you know, a recording of that show un- unedited, that was my favorite part. I, I just said, man, I look every night. I would look forward to Lisa coming down and playing nice. piano at the end of that. That was that was that was my, that was my favorite part of the show. <laughs> nice, <laughs> yeah. nice. Um, yeah. That that particular uh, tour would unfortunately be the last tour with you know the revolution right uh, yeah mm-hmm. from your standpoint obviously you you went on to stay with prince and do amazing stuff but at that particular point like what did you think of the transitioning of you know the revolution to the sign of times band where you're bringing in i guess more of sheila's uh players and things but right. why mm-hmm. do you think that, I mean, aside from personal relationships with, you know, Susanna or whatever, whatever, but in terms of the musician's side of it, what, what did well, you think? Well, I, I mean, for, first of all, you have, you, you have to remember one thing. Nothing is forever. So um, I, was, I was disappointed um, and, and, and it, it's it's I, I kind of hesitate to say to say this because I, I I don't mean to 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 um, cast any aspersions on any of the players that that weren't in the band after that. Sure. Wendy and Lisa had a musical relationship with Prince that went very deep, um, for a, a lot of different reasons. But there was a particular flavor that they brought to Prince's music during that period of time that just personally I happen to have really loved, um, you know, the, 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 uh, particularly our harmonic texture mm-hmm. that they brought. Um, and they really, the relationship that they had with Prince, they opened up Prince to a lot of different kinds of influences and things to check out. And Prince was in a, in, in a frame of mind at that point to really be open to a lot of the different things that, that they were bringing to him and some of the things that I was bringing to him or whatever. Um, so I... To be flat out honest, just personally, I never enjoyed the band as much after Wendy and Lisa were no longer there. Really? Now, the bands were great, the music shows were terrific, and the band was killer. But there was a certain component of the music that they brought. So I was very disappointed by their departure. Certainly, I was disappointed because of the relationship I had with Mark and, and with Bobby also. Now, bringing Sheila into the band... Um, that's something that I think was inevitable because we had already been doing a lot of recording sessions and a lot of jam sessions in the studio with Sheila uh, for over a year. And I just kind of thought back to, you know, I just thought, I said, boy, you know, sooner or later, I just think that he's going to um, create some kind of a role for, for Sheila in his music. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe, she, maybe he would ask her to maybe just come in and be a percussionist. You know, just maybe play congas and timbales or something. So it it wasn't a surprise to me, and I don't think it was a surprise to anybody when when he when he finally brought her in. You know, as 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 the drummer. Um, and and a lot of it is just that you know the main thing to remember is that Prince is an, is a musical artist, and it really you know we can all sit and pat ourselves on the back and say oh you know the significance of what I brought to his music or what anybody else. But, you know, it doesn't matter how much or how good we were in his music or how good we or how important we thought we were. 
there's going to come a time when Prince is going to say, you know, Eric is really cool. I really enjoy what he brought to my music. But, you know, there are other people out there that I can have in my band that are going to bring me something different. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't he take advantage of that? For Prince, it's a buyer's market. You know, he could sit there and put out a casting call and hundreds of extremely talented and capable musicians are going to line up wanting to be a part of his thing. Mm-hmm. So why shouldn't he take advantage of that? After I left the band, he had a horn section come in years later with Michael Nelson on trombone leading the band that was you know, referred to as the Hornheads. Mm-hmm. Those guys play their asses off. I was lucky to be there first, you know, wow. because if they had been there first, why would he needed me? You know, hmm. I mean, they could give him things that were going to be different from what I could give him. And, and in the early 90s, after I was no longer in his band, but by then was doing, you know, doing my own albums for Paisley Park, he would still bring me in from time to time to do recording sessions for him. But at the same time, he might bring in the Hornheads to do a recording session. Mm-hmm. So here he had the option and the luxury to be able to sit back and say, well, here's a song that I really want Michael Nelson to do an arrangement because that's, this is the kind of song that he's really going to give me what I want. Because Eric isn't going to give me what I'm hearing for on this song. But now here's another song that's right, kind of up Eric's alley, that's in his wheelhouse. So I want to hear what he's going to do with this song. So why shouldn't he take advantage of that? Sure. He's Prince, you know. So, so, you know. so those kind of changes in the band, that's a very natural progression for somebody like him. Um, so basically, you know, from my perspective, like, so, okay, we got new people here. Let's roll. <laughs> you know, did, did, my job is still the same. My job yeah, is still come to work and give him what he wants. <laughs> you know, so, you know, so on the other hand, I'm just saying, okay, I, I survived this cut. You mentioned, so I think during this period too, or leading up to this, and you talk about these jam sessions, can you talk a little bit about, uh, I don't know if this was the actual ner- t- term that you guys called it, but the flesh type, the sessions that you guys are playing? Um, sure, yeah. Yeah, they all happened in in a period of like one week out in L.A. Um, I tell you where they happened. They happened. They happened. Um, Eric brought receipts. I, I, I was in I was in Florida with my parents for the Christmas holiday, and the day after Christmas, this was Christmas in 1985. Um, Alan called me and said uh, he wants you out in L.A. tomorrow. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was like, you know, I was like one of my family in, 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 in Miami for the holidays. So I said, okay, fine. Grab my horn, jumped on a plane. And, and Alan said, the good thing is he just needs you for a couple of days, fly out there, do what he needs you to do, and then fly home, fly back to Florida for the rest of the holidays. Well, I was out in L.A. for three weeks. <laughs> wow. Um, but it was cool. We were, we were in, in, in the studio almost every day doing different things. So on, on a series of days... Uh, Sheila was around, Levi Caesar, who was not yet, had not yet, uh, um, you know, this was a good year before he was, you know, became a member of Prince's band, but he was already a member of Sheila's band, so he was hanging around. And on any given night, Wendy or Lisa, uh, myself, Prince, Sheila, Levi, I think Jonathan Melvoin was, was hanging around, um, any, any combination of us would be in the studio and we would just jam, just instrumental jams, and, and we recorded everything. And that's where these, these sessions came out. And, and um, 
I, I, yeah, I guess at some point during that, he started referring to it as, as the flesh. And there was at one point where he actually, and, and, and this was one of, one, one of the most wonderful opportunities that, that he gave me uh, at that point. He, um, we had about an hour's worth of, of these sessions, of just these jam sessions, and he said, Eric, um, I'm going to give you the studio for a few days. Mess around with this stuff. Hmm. Put some overdubs on it if you want, or any of the stuff that you want to edit. Make me an album. Make me an album's worth of stuff from this, wow. from these sessions. Now I knew that it was, that he, he he didn't mean that this was anything that was going to be released. Mm-hmm. You know, there there was no no point where any of us really considered that any of this was stuff that would was you know going to be actually worthy of being released. But the fact that here we are in, in, in Sunset, Sunset Sound Studios in L.A., and he's giving me the opportunity to have uh, you know, a, a major world-class facility at my, at my beck and call to be able to just spend a couple nights and screw around with this music was a wonderful compliment, an opportunity for him to give, you know, to give me uh, just to, to mess around because he was interested. Now, I wasn't the only one that you know, he, would do, you know, he would do that with Wendy and Lisa. He would mm-hmm. give them music and say, you know, girls, go, you know, go in and, and take this and, and just screw around with it. I want to see what you guys come up with. So it, you know, it wasn't just me that he was doing that with, but the fact that he, that he did it with this stuff was, 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 you know, so I had a ball working on that stuff. Now, I gave him, an, I, you know, I gave him a sequenced album. Um, that was going to be called The Flesh. Now, I, I knew it was not, not going to be released. Um, it was just for us. But I think he was just curious at that point to kind of, you know, to just kind of see what, you're gonna do with it. What, what I'd end up doing with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Well, yeah. I, you can tell he definitely had a lot of trust. You know, he trusted your opinion or trusted your ability to say, hey, take my stuff or take this and let me see what you, put your thing on top of it. I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing, man. No, it, it 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 was, and 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 yeah, it was. You know, when when the musician of Princess Caliber is 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 basically given the opportunity, and and of course the the, the full extension of that was several years later. Mm-hmm. You know, after we had done the Madhouse stuff, when he just finally he said, "Okay, the hell with this Madhouse stuff. I want. I'm just going to sign you to the label, and you got it. You know, it's it, it's gone. Do whatever you want to do. So wow. You know. uh, was there? You also remember a track uh, called "You Got to Shake Something." Yeah, that that was that was that was one of the things from those sessions. Okay. Um, and and um, yeah, I, th- I think I think it was that. I think that was the first one that he started referring to as as the flesh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I, and, I and that love was, that it. was. Yeah, and 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 uh, um, you know he he recut it, and he, you know he he did a song on Graffiti Bridge that was called "He Got to Shake Something." It was you know a completely different song. But it, but it was kind of like a, a, a different version of what. But the original track was just like a fifteen, the fifteen minute jam, and it was yeah. it was Prince Sheila Levi and myself. Yeah, yeah, that man, I remember hearing that for the first time, and just like the different changes, and some, you know, you hear him talk a little bit in it. So even the comedy and. Just the um, banner between on, on, it, it, in, in, in the spirit of full disclosure, and don't tell anyone that I told you this, other than the people that are listening, that hopefully listen to this. Prince was drunk that Hilarious. night. Hilarious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and now it all makes sense. Before it all we started, comes together. Now, now, Prince did not drink much. He did, so, a little, so a little bit of wine and Prince went a long way. Wow. But he and Sheila, they were both tanked. <laughs> yeah. That's they funny. they had they had split a good bottle of wine before we started hitting it that night, so Prince was feeling really good. 
Well, you yeah. can hear it, man. You can you can definitely hear it. It's, it's, it's funny yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, wow. So, uh, Madhouse, Sign of the Times. Again, it's such a drastic mm-hmm. shift uh, in, in just even the presentation of it all. But the Sign of the Times band, if, if you want to call it that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that tour... I guess that that's not the anti tour. That was a no. That that was not, that was back. Yeah, that was back to him. You know, you know, you know, presenting a, a major theatrical production. Yes. Um, although compared to the Love Sexy, uh, compared to the Love Sexy pr- pr- production, you know, Sign of the Times was romper room. <laughs> <laughs> talk, talk to us a little but, bit about the the Sign of the Times, and I also wanted to get your opinion too, because uh, I'm a huge fan of of the rehearsals. You know, not now again. I can only listen to them. Well, I've listened mm-hmm. to so many of them, and I just love the process and everything. But from your perspective and being in the band, like, can you tell us, like, how did that process start from conception to damn near, you know, the presentation, the final product? I mean, is there many changes that go through? Do you just start with the band before the the stage and all that? How does that all work? Yeah, that that that's pretty much, you know, like I said, it it's. Um, I wasn't around yet, you know. I, I had seen a little bit of the production rehearsals for the Purple Rain tour, but and and obviously the you know the Hit and Run tour was just basically us putting the music together and just going out and play. The you know since there was no real production to it other than that. So the sign of the times, knowing that this was going to be you know that that he had an idea for an elaborate stage presentation and and you know stage set and everything, so we knew this was going to be a little bit different. Um, he, he, you know, we saw some sketches of what the stage was going to look like, but we didn't see the stage for months after we had already, you know, been working on the music. So, so basically, his process was, um, you know, when we initially started working on the music for for what ended up being the Sign of the Times tour. He had already, we had already recorded a bunch of the songs that that were going to be on the Black album. Okay. So we actually started rehearsing some of that stuff. Songs like Cindy C and and Rebirth of the Flesh wow. and some of the other things that were on, on, on the Black Album. We actually started rehearsing those songs. Um, very quickly, that all fell by the way. That all just kind of got axed. And we started then concentrating more on the stuff that was going to be on the Sign of the Times album itself because we actually started rehearsing that tour before the album was even released. Um, so finally, once the album came out, uh, we started working on the specific music for that. But we were also, you know, oh God, there was some of the other music that, that uh, Crystal Ball, some of that other stuff yes. that didn't come out until way later, we were actually rehearsing some of that stuff. But once once the Sign of the Times album had come out, that's where we started really just working on, on that stuff. Can, can, I, can, I ask you, so, can, I, can I ask you a quick question? And I'm sorry, sure. you're mentioning no, all, no, these, no. all these jewels, and I'm just like, oh, shit. So before we go into that Sign of the Times, you mentioned mm-hmm. Crystal Ball, um, and, and like Birth of the Flesh and different things. Uh, one another recording that was probably done around this time uh, was Girl in My Dreams, Can't Stop This Feeling I Got, We Can Funk. That whole little sequence. Right. That, that was all stuff we had actually done with, with the revolution the year before. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, Prince, in, well, that, was, that was all done during rehearsals for the Hit and Run Tour. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and, and actually, the, the idea, Prince actually had an idea that he wanted to do a musical. Mm. Like, I mean, actually, like, like a Broadway musical. Wow, okay. 
which w- which would have been cool. I would I would have loved nothing better than going and sit in New York for months and just you know. <laughs> um, so those songs were actually his idea uh, 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 for you know. Now the the thing with Prince is you, you, you had to remember and, and and once you were in Prince's camp, you kind of took this. You understood this that a lot of what Prince would say and do and be excited about on Monday had nothing to do with what he was excited and what we were doing on Tuesday. You know? Got it. <laughs> so he could get really excited about something, and we'd go down this rabbit hole of his and follow him you know, in Wonderland and doing all this crazy stuff. And then a week later, it was like, well, whatever, what happened to that? And he said, oh, no, I'm past that. We're on to something else now. I said, <laughs> wow. okay, fine. You know, yeah. Wow. So, um, so yeah, so that stuff was actually done with the revolution. Yeah, uh, uh, during, oh, okay. during during that stuff. So so basically, the process was is that yeah, we we would start to rehearse the music, and over a period of time, and and this was this was always some of the more interesting periods for me was to sit back and and see what he was putting together for what the tour would be because we, you know it would be very experimental as far as the combinations of songs, different arrangements of songs. Because the one, night, one, one cool thing about Prince is that even though a recorded version of a song, as soon as the song was recorded, that isn't necessarily how we would play it. Mm, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I always appreciated that about, about him. because uh, um, Now, obviously, the, you know, there, there were a lot of songs that would be recorded that didn't have horns on the recorded version. And once we you know, got into the, to, to the performance aspect, then he would say, okay, I, you know, well, I got the horn players up here. I might as well put them to work. So, so you you know, it's like I said. Well, here's a song that the horns didn't play on 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 the recorded version. So he would come up with an arrangement for the horns, or he would tell me, ask me to come up with an arrangement. Or sometimes we just sit there and we throw some ideas against the wall and see what's what what stuck, and that would become the arrangement. Um, so obviously, I you know I, I always appreciated that aspect of it. Um, so after I, I would guess that you know after maybe. <laughs> two, two and a half months of working on, you'd start to really get it, get an idea. So, okay, now we're really getting an idea of what the, what the actual set list is going to be, what the show is, is going to be about. Um, but on the Sign of the Times tour, we got the set basically down to what it was going to be, and then we went to First Avenue and performed there. Oh, yes. And that was the first performance that introduced the new band, you know, with Sheila and mm-hmm. Levi and and Bonnie Boyer in it and me and and um and Cat Cat Glover. Um and then we went back and rehearsed a little bit more and then we went to Europe to start the tour but we actually didn't see the stage until we got to Europe. So we actually were in Europe um we were in Birmingham, England for a week and then we were in Stockholm, Sweden for a week doing just production rehearsals where now we were on the actual stage. Hmm. And you needed a few good weeks of just then running things down because this is where all the lights hmm. and all of the, you know, all of the, the, the effects on stage had to be programmed and integrated into the show. So production rehearsals were extremely tedious and boring. We all hated production rehearsals at least i did Hmm. because basically what it meant is you would start at the very top of the show and you would start playing and then you might get 30 seconds or a minute into a song and prince would say okay everybody stop and freeze and wherever you are stay there and then there's a guy named roy bennett who was the production designer Mm -hmm. for all of these tours 
He started, I think, before, I think he did Summer Prince's earlier tours. I know he did the Purple Rain tour. He did all the lights for the Hit and Run tour. He did all the lights and all of the production design for the stage. This is the guy who would actually design the stage with Prince for the Sign of the Times tour and the Love Sexy tour. So much of the theatrical and the visual aspect of Prince's tours were because of this guy, Roy Bennett. Hmm. Um, he was, and and he's, he since has become, you know, after that, I mean, he, you know, since, since then, he's, he's been one of the most highly in-demand production designers in, in, in entertainment. Um, but he, he really got his start with Prince. But all of that stuff that you saw on stage, this was, this was because of this guy, Roy Bennett. So the production rehearsals basically were Prince and Roy sitting down and then going into every song 30, 30 seconds at a time, a minute at a time, and then they would stop. And then they would sit and discuss. Prince would give Roy his ideas about what he wanted to happen with the lights or whatever, and Roy would give Prince his ideas of what he could do, and they would sit and they would have to program, because all the lights were programmed, you know, computer programmed at that point. Yeah. So they would have to then sit and program. So that might be five or ten minutes while they're sitting commiserating on that, and we just got to sit on stage and just sit there. And then Prince would say, "Okay, pick it up exactly where we left off." Wow! <laughs> you know, so it's like he'd, you know, it's like if you had a tape, you'd hit stop or pause, and then you'd hit play to pick it up. So we'd pick it up, and we'd maybe get another two minutes into the song, and Prince would yell, "Stop!" Mm. You know, and then and and this is what we would do day after day for like two or three weeks because it would take that long to get everything together, and that's wow. what production rehearsals were. I hated them. <laughs> I just, I, I just, I, I hate. Now, to, to be honest, I'm sure Prince didn't really like him that much either, because they were just tedious and they were boring. But this is the process that you had to go through. Mm-hmm. This is why the shows looked, why how they did, and and you know, I mean, to be absolutely honest with you, when we when we did the Love Sexy tour, I was so bored with mm-hmm. that show before we played the first performance, because we, we rehearsed and put that show together for almost four and a half months before we played the first gig. Wow. And the, rehearse, and the production rehearsals on that tour were a nightmare, because we had some unforeseen technical difficulties with lights and sound and everything that had to be addressed before we could even play the first show. So there was an awful lot of tension that was going on during the production rehearsals on that. Fortunately, everything came together, and the first show went off without a hitch. But i got to be honest with you. We, I, I slept walked through that entire show, that tour. I can't tell you anything about that that about anything that I felt other than then, okay, here's another gig we're doing tonight. Boy, this is just the same thing we did last night. Wow. And, and I, the funny thing was is that after that tour was over, years and years later, I think in the mid-90s, I was in, in Japan with a band with Sheila E that we had for a while called the E-Train, which was hands down one of the greatest bands and, and hippest gigs that I, I ever had. I mean, it was one of my favorite gigs that I ever did. Um, and I was in Japan and was in a record store and I came across, uh, a bootleg video of the Love Sexy tour because th- there had been a live broadcast mm-hmm. of the tour from, from Germany yeah. that was broadcast on, on European TV. And I, I, you know, I had never seen it. So I, I really had 
no real understanding of what even the Love Sexy show looked like because I was just on stage. I never got a chance to see it. I never saw a video. So anyway, so I, and it was a bootleg video, you know, in, in a record store in Japan. So I said, oh, wow. So I bought it, you know. Now, and, and I took it home thinking that I said, I'll be surprised if the, you know, if, the, if the video quality is any good at all. I was expecting it to be like, you know, a copy of a copy of a copy of mm. a copy that, you know. So I, I got it home and, and I threw it in my, my VHS player and was really pleasantly surprised that the video quality was superb. It was like I had recorded it off the TV myself. Right. So I said, oh, cool. This is great. It's a really good. But I didn't watch it. For whatever reason, I just checked it. I said, cool, I'll, I'll check it out later, and I put it away. Wow. I didn't watch it. I didn't end up watching it for like another 10 years. And a friend of mine, uh, a, a, a guy that, that was, was a friend of mine who was um, a fan of some of Prince's music, was, was visiting me in, in, in Minneapolis one weekend. And we were talking, and, and, and he mentioned that, you know, he had never gotten a chance to see the Love Sexy show. And I said, oh, well, you know something? I happen to have a video of it. Um, so, you know, we were having dinner or whatever. I said, after dinner, we'll go back to my place. I, yeah, I'll dig it out. I got it somewhere. I'll throw it in. We'll, we'll watch a little bit of it. Get, a, get a chance to see what that show is about. I figured we'd watch maybe five or ten minutes of it. We ended up watching most of it. And I was absolutely fascinated by it. Because, first of all, I didn't remember much about it. <laughs> You know, a lot of it was like I was watching it for the first time. And and I tell you what, the band was on fire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the band was just smoking. I mean, it was just, oh, my God. (laughs) And I'm sitting there. I'm looking at this like I was never even a part of it. And I'm I'm, and, and and I said, wow, I don't remember ever feeling that while we were actually doing it. Mm. You know, it was just it was just odd. So so you know, and that was just a that was just a factor. But but by the same token, the only way you could have presented a show like the Sign of the Times tour or the Love Sexy tour is to basically have rehearsed it enough that you could basically go up there and do it in your sleep. Right. You had you know you really had to just be able to do it backwards and forwards. You know. Man, that 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 Love Sexy uh, thing that you talk about. If I'm not mistaken, that was actually officially released overseas at that time because i remember seeing ads for it in some import magazines pissed because i was in america of course there was no way i could get it but uh right right one, yeah, one yeah. of the favorite parts about that to me uh that piano melody thing that prince does mm-hmm, on the mm-hmm. second half and at yeah. the end of that you guys go into when two are in love and then you you come out and you start playing and i think you go into the madhouse song three but um, was that, sometimes yeah, you may have, yeah, I don't know if you yeah. did, but that was one yeah. of my favorite parts because just the way you're playing is just up, you, you up there by yourself and Prince is kind of, kind of walking out and he's got the spotlight. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, the piano was descending below the stage yeah. at that point, the, yeah, that riser. That's yeah. a no, dope, I, I that was a dope that. moment, man. I was like, that's Eric, man, doing, and it was good to hear that song because I was like a fan of Madhouse. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, they doing that. I was like, well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, those, those, those were the interests. You know, that, that's when I watched the show. That's the stuff that really fascinated me because um, the transitions that he would come up with, mm. to, you know, to connect certain songs together, that was some of the most interesting stuff for me that he would ever come up with. Is, is, you know, this, uh, because, you know, one song would just, you know, it was like the whole show was like 
one big piece. Mm-hmm. You know, just one song just would meld into another, and you would come up with these really cool little ideas to you know to get from one thing to. Those are the things that I really, you know, those those are the things in the rehearsals that I really enjoyed, is where you could sit back and just watch his creativity come out like that. Um, yeah, uh, but, but yeah, okay. you know the, the the thing is now part, part part you know when I say that I was bored with the show that part part of that is a function of of the fact of 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 my basic perspective on music is from the from the standpoint of being a jazz player. Mm. So I want to play I want to play the music different every night. I got you. you know. So, so I appreciate what 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 the statement is, and 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 you know, and the Love Sexy show did evolve over a period of time. Um, I'm sure that the, you know, I'm sure that if I heard the very last performance of that show, mm-hmm. which was like six months after the first, I you know, I'm sure there were a lot of little things that changed over, over a period of time. Um, but for example, the Hit and Run tour was was the most enjoyable one for me because first of all, it, there were no theatrics; it was just the band coming out and playing. And the fact is that there were lo- there was a lot of alternates in that on the Hit and Run tour, and there were a lot of um, um, you know we we had a basic set list, but there was alternate stuff that would go on during the gig that Prince wouldn't even call until we were you know at football. What did they say? They you know they call an audible, audible. right? Mm-hmm. Prince was calling audibles all through the hit and run tour. <laughs> like for example, there was a point there was a point on, in the show every night on, on, on that that gig where um, we would either play Mutiny or we would play Love Bazaar. Mm. And it was either gonna be one or the other. And Prince would never decide which one he wanted to do until right before. Now the way it was set up, we whatever song that we came out of before that, Wendy would always count off the song for us. And she would, if she, if she counted off saying one, two, one, two, three, if we knew it was numbers, it was gonna be mutiny. But if she counted it off saying A, B, A, then we knew it was gonna be Love Bazaar. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that was, now what Prince would do is right before that, he would lean over to, to, to Wendy and say either mutiny or Love Bazaar. So that was her cue. But the rest of the band didn't know what it was going to be until she counted it off. That was our cue. And other songs that we did were more wide open because, you know, was, that gig was more a little heavily on, on the more open-ended funk and R&B stuff. So he would open up a lot of the songs. Like, you know, we, we were doing Head on that show. Well, on any given night, maybe that would be three or four minutes long. Some nights would be ten minutes long. And then any given, sh- any given um, show... He might just throw another solo to me or, or, or to whomever or, or to Map Liston or whatever. So, you know, it, it was much more of an open-ended. So those are the things that I appreciated because we really didn't know exactly what the show necessarily was going to be every given night. Whereas a the theatrical performance, by definition, has to pretty, be pretty much what it is because you've got all of the stage effects and all of the lights that have to be so completely coordinated with it. So you don't have the luxury of being able, in the middle of a song, for Prince to say, "Okay, I'm going to do something else," right. because all of a sudden the computerized lights and everything are like, you know, all of a sudden, well, this doesn't make any sense any longer. Wow. So you know, those were absolutely brilliantly presented shows, and okay. and and the most important thing is, you know, forget about what I think. You know, I I mean, I. I didn't like the Sign of the Times tour because of the stage. Now, the stage looked wow. brilliant, and it was everything but. I happened to have a fear of heights. 
Okay. <laughs> and if you look at the stage, where me and, and Bliston were, were on a very high platform at the back of the stage. Now, it wasn't as if I really knew, you know, really felt that I was going to fall off. But when you have a fear of heights, it's the perception of things. And I never felt comfortable physically on that stage. It has nothing to do with the music. It's just that I always just felt uncomfortable. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, so, you know that, that's something that you know, isn't necessarily, anyone's necessarily going to think about. You say, yeah, right, up there, he's kicking ass, he's in a great band. I said, yeah, it's a great band, we're playing great music. But I'm up there thinking, oh, shit, I don't <laughs> like being up here. You're up here terrified. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so, what the hell? I, I, I got a job to do, you know, so. Keep saying y'all 